We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles, please, tonight to Acts chapter 2. Uh, Acts chapter 2, we've spent a couple of sessions in here already, uh, but we'll go on to verse 14 and following. We're going to be looking at the first preaching of the church, we could say, or maybe Peter's first sermon, however you want to call it. Remember that the uh, Spirit of God has been poured out into the uh, lives of the uh, apostles and the earliest uh, of the disciples. We're not sure exactly how many of them of the initial 120 that we read about in Acts chapter 1, but uh, they have received a manifestation of the Spirit for specific kinds of work that uh, God has called them to, and particularly to proclaim the mighty works of God through uh, speech in various languages. And so they uh, do that with uh, the help of God's Spirit, with His enablement, and the people looking on uh, say, hey, this is really strange. What's going on here? Uh, it is definitely odd. And so Peter responds with a sermon, uh, we could say, a uh, kind of extemporaneous sermon right on the spot. How would you like to be thrust into that situation to have to give a message like that? And uh, I don't think I'll be able to give it just like he did, but I'd like to just highlight some of what he says. Basically starts out, Peter does, with saying, look, this is not what the people are claiming it to be, that there's drunkenness among the crowd here, that it's just, just nonsense. It's nine o'clock in the morning. People don't get drunk like this. And, and furthermore, if you think about it, when people are drunk, they might speak in gibberish, but they don't speak in understandable languages, uh, other languages for sure. So uh, this is not what you're thinking about. But if you had your thinking caps on, my Jewish believing friends, he says, you would remember that there was something in the Old Testament in the prophet Joel, which is like this. And uh, he quotes from Joel chapter 2, and he says, Here's what Joel said to us. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Well, that's what's happened here. He knows that the Lord Jesus taught them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the spirit. Remember, Jesus uh, told his disciples on several occasions, uh, or John actually began this, but... Uh, John said, look, I baptize you with water, but Jesus is coming and he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And the same thing in Acts chapter 1. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse um, 5, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so they knew that a ministry of the Spirit was coming. They didn't know exactly what it would look like, but Peter, uh, pretty fast on his feet here, says, aha, this must be what he was talking about. And uh, sure enough, 
So quoting from Joel to the crowd, he says, look, there is coming in the last days a work of God's spirit, and there's going to be a real outpouring of that spirit. Here's what it's going to look like. Your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. On my men servants and maid servants, Joel said, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Certainly something akin to what's going on now, isn't it? And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, just pause for a moment and let me pause Peter's sermon here and explain what has just happened and what he has just said. Um, Obviously, this is an explanation of why this is not drunkenness. This is a work of the Spirit of God like that predicted in Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32. And there are other portions of Scripture as well. For instance, don't turn there, just let me turn there for you. In Isaiah 32, verse 15, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. And also in Isaiah 44, in verse number 3, there's a promise of the work of God's Spirit. For I will pour on him who is, sorry, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Or one more in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 29. The prophet Ezekiel says, And I will not hide my face from them anymore. For I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. So if you're an observant Jew, you should know that a work of God's spirit is coming in the future, which is much different than what you've experienced in the past. However, let's be clear as we've paused Peter's sermon and we just review what uh, we can understand from what he's quoted here as written in the, in the Holy Scriptures. This is not precisely what was promised in Joel. It's not precisely what was promised in Joel because if you look at verse 19 and 20, there is no evidence that these, the content of these two verses was fulfilled at that time. Okay? Let me... Let me just say, there were at that time no wonders in heaven, no signs on earth, no blood, no fire, no vapor of smoke, Canadian wildfires notwithstanding. That was, uh, by the way, interesting. I said, I never really thought, what what does vapor of smoke mean? And then when the Canadian wildfires came and the sky was filled with smoke, I said, That's what vapor of smoke probably means. Fires on the earth so much that there's smoke that overcasts all other kinds of areas on the earth where the fire is not yet. Anyway, uh, the sun did not turn dark. Which number is this? Let's see. No no wonders in heaven, signs on earth, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. Number six, the sun did not turn dark. Seven, the moon was not turned to blood. Okay, are you with me? 
You agree with me, all right? So these events will occur much more closely to the coming of the Lord. So at most what we could say is that Joel was partially fulfilled. A new ministry of the Spirit began at this time. But I believe that the complete fulfillment of Joel will be in the eschaton in the last days. And I'll give you one little connection. Not partially fulfilled, you know, a little kind of piece by piece or piecemeal, but this way in uh, Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. That's Zechariah 12.10, for example. I also believe that what we have here is that Acts 2, Peter is doing what we call an, an analogy use of Joel. I have to say that because otherwise if I say, look, he's saying this is all fulfilled, Peter would be wrong. But Peter's not wrong. And this is an analogy. He's saying, look, this is like what the Lord said. We shouldn't be surprised that a work of God's Spirit is going to be poured out. It's promised in the Old Testament. And here is a work of God's Spirit being poured out, even upon Gentiles. In Acts 10, the Bible showed that Gentiles received the Spirit of God, so this is not an Israelite promise only. Um, now, somebody would say, look, uh, in, in Acts 2.16, uh, Peter, yeah, Peter says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And you might say, well, that sounds like it has to be completely fulfilled, even though we know it's not completely fulfilled. So then you might kind of track down some strange path of saying, well, maybe the sun was turned to darkness and the moon was turned to blood and all that sort of thing. You don't have to go down that route. What you have to realize is that the New Testament authors, the apostles, had a much different definition of fulfill than you and I do. We've said this before. Fulfilled could mean a number of different things. We think of fulfill meaning an event is predicted and it happens. But fulfill in the authors of the Bible's mind could mean that, but it could mean other things. Like this is like that, or this is, this is, like, uh, this is like David. So is David, uh, is this a fulfillment like of a prophecy? No, it's, it's a type or an analogy or an antitype. So fulfill has a much wider range of meaning in the Greek mind, in the, really in the Hebrew mind speaking Greek, than it does in our mind. Um, Matthew 2.15 is a classic example. Out of Israel I called my son, fulfilling Hosea 11.1, but Hosea 11.1 is not a prophecy. It is just a statement of history. Okay, so how did, how did Matthew 2.15 fulfill Hosea 11.1? It's easy if you just back up for a second and think, like the Bible author could think. He's saying, wait a second. Jesus has just been called out of Egypt, and he's come back into Israel. Well, that's a lot like what happened in the history of Israel when God brought his son, his son, Israel out of Egypt. It's the same, it's a parallel. You see that? It's a parallel. So fulfillment can mean parallel, a parallel kind of situation. 
This is a parallel situation here with Joel's prophecy. Now, uh, the associated with the Spirit's work here is salvation available for all. Let me see if I can help you understand this as it dawned upon me in my study. Calling on the name of the Lord, first of all, notice that in verse 21, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord obviously means more than just saying the name of Jesus, right? We understand that. That's, it's fairly obvious. We don't just have an incantation where we say the name of Jesus over and over again and suddenly we get saved. That's not what that means. Um, if you remember like Romans 10, Romans 10, uh, 12 and 13, it says there, um, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then it goes on to talk about how are they going to call on people in whom they, uh, someone who, whom they have not believed and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard and so on. So somebody has to go to them and tell them. You know, a preacher, a missionary has to go to tell them who this Jesus is and about him so that they can believe in him and call on him. So it means to believe. Calling on him means to believe in him as Lord and to believe in his death for sin and his resurrection and, and those things to really kind of entrust yourself to him. That's what we're talking about, to call on the name of the Lord. But where I think we get confused or turned around to get kind of chasing our tail is if we think that the main point of this passage is to talk about the Spirit being poured out, we've actually missed the point. The point of the Spirit being outpoured is not the main point of this section of Scripture. It serves as a connection point between a contemporary context and the ancient prophecy, which both carry the main point, which is stated in verse 21. Can I say that again? Because I think I might have lost you. Peter is saying, there is a time in the, in the prophet Joel when God prophesied that in the far future there's going to be an outpouring of God's Spirit and there's going to be a, that time is going to be associated with this truth, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Peter says, in that time, a time like that time is right now. God is also pouring out His Spirit, not fulfilling everything that Joel talked about, but He is pouring out His Spirit and emphasizing that this is a time to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. It's parallel. It's like. And it's amazing because if you think about it, what God has done with the Spirit's ministry is cause these people to be able to speak the wonderful works of God, to be able to proclaim the gospel. Why? So that they would call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And he's opened this up to all flesh. We're not just focused now on Jewish people only. We're focused on the whole population of the world. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. The main point is right there. The open invitation to call on Christ. Charismatics focus on the ministry of the Spirit, but the Spirit's ministry is to point people to Christ and persuade them to call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. This is why that that Pentecost and all the days after it are like what Joel talked about. What Joel talks about is in the far future, the Spirit's going to be poured out, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. And Peter is saying, hang on a second. Actually, it's true before that happens, there's still a universal availability for salvation, or there is now already. You can call on the Lord and be saved. Today, anyone can call on the name of Christ, regardless of what outpourings of the Spirit are observed in the world. A future age will come in which the same will be true. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the ministry of the Spirit and the strange heavenly phenomena, you know, the, the, the moon turning to blood and the sun being dark, that will happen then too. It's not happening at the present, but it will happen in the future. So I don't know if I've totally lost you, but I haven't lost myself at least. <laughs> it's making sense. If you can carry any, anything away from this, look where Peter finished the quote. He started the quote with the Spirit of God to make a connection in their minds. And he ended it at the portion in which says, if you call in the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. That's his main point. Now, who is this Lord that I'm talking about? Men of Israel, hear these words as we unpause his sermon now. We've just spent a moment there to understand what he was saying. He continues, men of Israel, listen. I'm going to tell you about that Lord on whom you need to call. He's a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and various signs which God did through him. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. He was in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Lord, the one that I'm telling you to call upon his name to be saved. He was delivered by the purpose and determined foreknowledge of God. So God's sovereignty was in effect, but you, you were responsible by lawless hands for taking him, crucifying him, putting him to death, calling out to Pilate, Crucify him. But after you did that, God raised him up. He loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by death. I'm telling you about this Lord upon whom you must call to be saved. The work of the Spirit of God that has come among us to help us to speak this message in multiple languages has this purpose to get you to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Jesus was killed by your hands, but he rose from the dead. God raised him up because it was impossible for him to be held in death. And listen, I can tell you, Peter says, you know that this is the case because King David himself back a thousand years ago said, I saw the Lord always before my face, for he's at my right hand. I shall not be moved or shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. 
You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now let me tell you about this David. This David is dead and buried. He did see corruption, okay? But he was a prophet. David was a prophet. And he told us by these words that God had promised with an oath to raise up someone, his seed, the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, that he would raise up this one to sit upon his throne forever and ever. And so he foresaw this and so spoke concerning the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus' soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of whom we are witnesses. I'm telling you, we saw Jesus alive. Some of you probably heard this, maybe even saw him. So since he's been exalted to the right hand of God and he's received from the Father the promise of the Spirit that he told us about, now he's poured it out on us. It wasn't David that ascended into heaven. Who was it that ascended into heaven? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You see how Peter is preaching here? So, what he says, what we say as well, therefore, all of you, the house of Israel and all of you here, should know assuredly that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let me push the pause button again on Peter's sermon and just say this. What does it mean that he made him Lord and Christ? Isn't he Lord and Messiah inherently in himself? Yes, he is. But I think this maybe could say speaks from the human perspective. Here's a man who came. You didn't recognize this man. He came into his own and his own received him not. But now... This man, who was more than a man, but let's just say he was a man too. You didn't know who he was, but he died and he rose again. God putting his stamp on him that he is now Lord and Christ. You listen to him. That's what Peter is saying. This is the man who has been promised, the promised Messiah. Remember on Sunday morning we went over the... uh, what did I call it, uh, the connection really between Messiah and Jesus, between Christ and you know, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And we looked at uh, his, his birth and his identity and his death and his glory, those four things, and we connected the dots from the Old Testament to the New Testament revelation, from the promise of the Messiah coming to the guy who actually did all this stuff, and we make a, a logical connection in our mind. Well, if he did, all, if this guy was predicted to do all of this, and Jesus did all of this, they must be equal. That's it. That's the style of the argumentation that's being used. It's good logic. It makes good sense. All right, where were we as we unpause Peter's sermon? So everybody should know that God has made him Lord and Christ. Now, if somebody's Lord and somebody's Messiah, what does that mean for you if you're a Jewish person? if you have no knowledge of the New Testament, but somebody comes and proves to you that here's this guy, he's the Messiah, what are you going to do with him? You're going to listen. 
You're going to look at him. You're going to say, what did he teach? What, what does he say that I need to do? Oh, in his Sermon on the Mount. Oh, he taught that he's dying for my sin. That's, that's what it meant that he was going to suffer. He made his soul an offering for sin so that God's wrath would be satisfied. And then he rose up from the dead so that he would be glorified. Ah, now I understand where the Old Testament prophets searched diligently trying to figure out what manner of time they were speaking about when they testified the sufferings of Christ and then the glories to follow. You scratch your head and say, how can the Messiah suffer? And then how can he be glorified? I thought he was just going to be glorified. No, actually he's going to suffer. We saw that in in our reading of the Hebrew Bible. So what happened then was when the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart. Perhaps some of them were the ones that were induced by the Pharisees and the Sadducees days earlier to say, crucify him. And they now realize, uh uh-oh, We made a huge mistake in a little pre-fulfillment kind of view into Zechariah 12:10. They mourned as one mourns for their only son, and they realized we've killed the Messiah. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Men and brethren, what shall we do?" Well, let me ask you this question. Suppose that Peter said in answer to their their inquiry, well, guys, it's too late. There's nothing that you can do. Imagine. There's no answer to your question. You blew it. No second chance here. Wouldn't that be terrible? Wouldn't that be terrible if you came to the Lord and said, Lord, what do I do about my sin? And you say... He said, sorry, too late for that. Should have thought of that before you sinned. Thank God for his grace and his mercy. Here's what Peter told them to do. He said, first of all, repent. Repent. Secondly, he said, be baptized in the name of Christ. Be baptized in the name of Christ. So what is... What is repent? Well, it's, that's his, his language that refers to conversion. Repentant faith. Believe in him. Turn away from your sin. And then, and then when you do that, you're saved. And then be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? You'll have remission of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole debate about You know, do you need to be baptized in order to have remission of sins? We've dealt with that often enough before. We can do that another time if it's of interest to you. But the point is, you get saved, you get baptized, you have to do both. You don't have to be baptized in order to be saved, right? Thief on the cross. But if you're a Christian and you're not on a cross and you get saved, you better be baptized. See what I'm saying? Yeah, when, when, if, you're, if you get saved hanging on a cross, I'll excuse you from baptism, okay? But until then, you need to be baptized. That's what the Lord taught, okay? So make a public statement of your identification with Jesus and his death and resurrection. Baptism doesn't make faith. 
It just shows the reality of faith. So, but repenting is the first part, obviously. And when you do that, you'll receive remission of sins. So they say, what are we going to do about our sin? We said to crucify the guy. We sinned. What do we do? Well, you can get remission. You can get your sins removed, washed away, cleansed, forgiven, uh, acquitted. The guilt is taken away. You're justified before God if you repent and trust in Christ. That's how you handle your sin problem. God has graciously provided for that. Four, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. Gentiles, wouldn't it be Gentiles? (laughs) Yeah. As many as the Lord our God will call. Okay, so there's a little bit of theology there about the special or effectual call, about the a special work of God's grace, but the general call has gone out. He's preached to thousands of people. And he says, and it says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved from this perverse generation. Well, couldn't we say the exact same thing today? (laughs) Sounds like a parallel from then till now. Uh, It's a prophecy, (laughs) You know, it's a prophecy, sort of, uh, not exactly, but it is very parallel, very analogous to what we have going on today. You need to realize that God's promise is to you and your children and those who are afar off, and you too need to be saved from this perverse generation. Well, that's a little review of Peter's sermon, and uh, it's been interesting to me to uh, kind of deliver it that way uh, with a couple pauses in there just for explanation. But can you imagine Peter booming this out in his fisherman's voice to thousands and thousands of souls? And we're going to see next time how many people responded to that message. This was a tremendous response. Uh, uh, The outpouring of God's Spirit was evident there in that place, and he was working not only in the apostles and the disciples already, but making new disciples. And so, oh, Lord, would you send your spirit in Ann Arbor? Send it in our young people's lives. Send it in our community. Lord, would you use us to be ministers of the gospel, to share like Peter shared the word, and to see your spirit work? to bring people to repentance and to be baptized. Thank you in advance, Lord. We trust that you will and fill up this place and churches of like mind and faith and practice with us with a new revival. We need it in Jesus' name. Amen.